Well, we are in Exodus chapter 22 in the midst of part of the book that's called uh, the Book of Ordinances. These are laws given in addition to the Ten Commandments uh, handed down by God uh, to Moses that the people uh, would agree to as part of their part of their covenant with God. And we uh, this week come to a section of laws that don't, at least at first read, seem to hang together as a union. That is, they, they just seem to be random collected laws. Like this is somewhere where they just kind of shoved them in there. But I think James Jordan is right when he says these laws are all on the theme of faithfulness to God, even as they have uh, different aspects or applications of faithfulness in view. I mean, faithfulness to God is lived out in every aspect uh, of our lives. And these case laws deal with some pretty wide ranging topics. And and I'll just say this up front. This is why I like doing expositional preaching because I probably would never choose to hit most of these topics if given my choice, but God is not fearful of them at all. And so these case laws deal with sexuality and worship and immigrants and the poor and your work and productivity and even dealing with animals, both live and dead. So we're covering today, chapter 22. We're gonna pick it up with 16. And I'm I'm going to read it all the way to the end of the chapter. Verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, You shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me uh, pray for us as we begin. Lord, I thank you for the word that you've given to us. It is strange to us. I fully admit this is a strange and difficult passage in many ways. But Lord, I pray that uh, for the sake of your people and for the sake of your glory, I'd be clear this morning. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would glorify you, that we'd be shaped by this word, that we would grow into it, that we'd want to walk more and more in your ways because we see how good you are and how good your character is. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Uh, what stands behind all these diverse case laws is spiritual adultery. That is not keeping faith with God in 
some very different aspects of our lives. So remember, Israel was not in a business arrangement with God. Some Christians read it that way, and that's wrong. God was not in a business arrangement with his people. No, Israel's married to God. And we talked about this when we were going through the Ten Commandments, that uh, to have no other gods or to not worship God on our terms or worshiping some other god or an idol or uh, as his bride taking or carrying his name lightly, all of this is to commit spiritual adultery. And to say spiritual adultery makes it sound as if this is something that has no bearing uh, on the physical world. But as Jesus teaches, all sin begins in the heart and moves outward through the body into the world. It's why Jesus teaches that what really defiles a person isn't what you take in to your body, it's what comes out of your heart. It's why the most common way to express our love for God is in how we love our neighbor. So what you do with your body matters to God and is a reflection of your love for him. So these laws are all examples. Remember what we said, there's many thousands more laws than what are here in the Bible. These are the examples and really the foundation of their case law system of how God's people commit spiritual adultery in real tangible ways. So let's begin with that first example uh, in verse, verses 16 and 17 and that issue of seduction. These particular laws, I think, serve as a bridge uh, between the previous section on property laws and the laws that come after with uh, faithfulness in worship. And this is a case about an unmarried man who seduces an unmarried woman, or as we would call that, fornication or premarital sex. And with adultery, which is different, it, you know, adultery involves two married people. In that case, the penalty is death for both parties. This is different. This is the case of two people engaging in activities that are reserved for the covenant of marriage where the commitment of loyalty and faithfulness is supposed to be in place, and in this case, it is not. So this is, in actuality, a case of theft. It's taking what you have no right to take because it has been withheld from you. See, it's, it's not breaking faithfulness with the other human, it's breaking faith with God. It's not rape, it's stealing. There's other laws on rape that carry the death penalty. Now, this is two people taking the benefits of the covenant of marriage without the commitment of faithfulness. So it's not love, even though they may think it is. It's actually selfishness. You know, and up until the 1960s and the advent of mass contraceptives, this kind of selfishness was incredibly risky and put pressure on the woman that the man did not have to bear, at least not in the same sort of way. And though both the man and the woman are in the wrong here, the person who tends to bear the brunt of this sin the most is the woman. You know, doing this could potentially radically change her situation for life. And it's partly why I think the legal penalty is actually directed towards the man. So the man pays what he would have paid had he not acted selfishly and actually pursued the woman in an honest, godly fashion. The penalty here is the bride price or what we think of as a dowry. And we've talked about this in weeks past. This is basically her insurance money. This is her own money uh, that she would keep in her own account, so to speak, that her husband couldn't touch. This was hers to invest and to grow and to work through for her life. And in this case, the penalty is the man pays that, that price 
with the option of marrying her. Now, this is not excusing the sin or attempting to cover what happened. It's actually repentance. So for the man, the penalty says, you know, I have taken a fruit that was not mine to take and I need to pay it. But it might be that the woman's father here, and this is the very next verse, refuses to let her daughter marry the man. And now he may have very good reasons for this, especially if it appears the man was in fact not a very faithful Israelite. I mean, after all, he took what was not his to take. In that case, if that's what the father agrees to, or that's what he thinks, the man still owes the bride price and the woman keeps the money. Now to be sure, there will be social costs and consequences for both parties. And by the way, our culture doesn't think this way, but it's absolutely true. Sex always has a cost, always. But the penalty here is actually equitable. So this law is in place really in many ways as a warning so that the woman knows that, that she may have to marry this man. She engages in this. She may have to marry this man and bear his children. And she needs to be asking, is this guy worth it? He's not offering her anything tangible up front. Maybe just his feelings, which are worth nothing, by the way. Is it worth the risk to engage in this activity when clearly he wants something that is not his to take? He's using her and she's willing to be used by him and use him too. Is this the kind of guy she wants to be in covenant with? Does she want children with this guy? Now for the man, this law is telling him he may not get this woman as his bride, even as he will be paying for her as if she is his bride. Is a one night stand worth giving up the dowry for a future bride that he may not actually get? Is a woman so expendable? What if he's denied this woman and then because of his circumstances, he can't afford another dowry in the future? What then? But even more so, are both will, people willing to risk so much? And it is a risk. It is a big risk. So much for a momentary satisfaction. And this, of course, was the question put to Adam and Eve in the garden. Could they wait for what God had promised to give them anyway? That's often missed. God had promised, you may have it, just wait. Just wait, will you wait on me? And notice too, and I think this is really important, that God does not try to cover up the sin in the way that some Christians might try to in our circles. He doesn't say, listen, if she gets pregnant, you have to make an honest woman of her as quickly as you can so no one will see and you won't be embarrassed by this. No. I mean, how many Christians have done this only to see you know, such marriages end in divorce, you know, making things far worse? You know, God is not appalled at the prospect of a single woman having a baby because of her sin. He's not. Now, you see Christians in our circles like that, but you don't see that with God. No, as we will see here in a few minutes, God expects Israel to love such children. And it's assumed the father of the woman will keep this child and this woman in his home. God loves his people despite their sin and actually through their sin. It's why he loves repentance and restoration. And we should too. I mean, this law is actually directed towards the very end. So the law wisely then gives room for wisdom. It gives room for wisdom and it recognizes that a marriage in some situations like this might actually make things worse and it gives provision for that. All right, let's change gears. We're gonna do this a lot. 
We're gonna change gears and this is getting ready to be a whole new show. Here we go. I'm gonna take these next three laws, verses 18 through 20 together, as they are variations on the theme of worshiping false gods. This too is in the issue of faithfulness. Now, the first of these deals with a sorceress. Now think of this person as like a fortune teller or a medium that tries to communicate with the dead or fallen spiritual beings in order to get insider knowledge on the present or the future. An example of this is 1 Samuel 28. And if you remember that passage, uh, Saul is king. Uh, it's later in his rule, the prophet Samuel has died. God has abandoned Saul uh, for his unfaithfulness and Israel is pretty near to a battle with the Philistines. So Saul is, he's trying to get God's approval for his fight here. And, or really, he's just wanting to get an answer on what he should do, but God is silent. He's abandoned him. So disguising himself, Saul goes to a medium uh, at Endor and asks her to divine a spirit for him in order to bring up Saul, excuse me, Samuel from the dead so that Samuel could tell him what to do. And this, in fact, happens. But Saul does not get the answer he wants. Now, leaving aside all the questions about how that sort of thing worked and if it's possible today, which is probably what you really want to hear answered, and I'm not, uh, the issue is whether Israel, who had access to the creator God, who was married to him, would they do this sort of thing? Would they go seeking out after other voices or after other gods? Which voice would Israel listen to? Now, of course, an Israelite, either male or female, because it wasn't just females who did this. You had, I guess you would say, witches and warlocks doing this kind of thing. People who decided to engage in this kind of activity had already rejected God. Right? They, they had become full-on pagans. But for an Israelite like King Saul, who knew the true God, for him to make use of a medium is just straight-up spiritual adultery. And in a certain sense, it's far worse the being a medium itself. And, and we get it. You know, when God seems silent and we want answers or protection or peace of mind, the temptation is to go looking for someone or something to, you know, to give us that peace or to give us an answer. And that, that temptation is just massive when we're in a crisis. It's why God would not allow mediums or sorceresses to remain alive in Israel's borders. Now, similarly, in verse 20, it says that whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone, that person shall be devoted to destruction. Now, like with sorcery, you know, someone who sacrifices to another god has, has openly rejected God. So th these are variations on the same sort of thing. And it's like what we see with the prophets of Baal against Elijah, if you remember that story, or with what King Manasseh did in 2 Kings 21, in which he, he made shrines and altars to Baal and Asherah, and he went so far as to erect them uh, in the temple itself. And in turn, he, he consulted mediums and necromancers and fortune tellers, and he even offered uh, his own son in child sacrifice by burning him alive. So God says to put people like this to death. Put those people to death. And of course, this is exactly what uh, Elijah brutally did to the prophets of Baal, if you're familiar with that story. But the thing is, this might not just be an isolated individual. In fact, it rarely is. I mean, the influence of King Manasseh on 
on the kingdom was huge. It was huge. So for example, in Deuteronomy 13, if a whole city in Israel was led to worship other gods, Israel was to come together, destroy the city, including all its people and its cattle, and burn the city as a burnt offering to the Lord. That's what devote to destruction means. So you see that in our verse here. That's a technical phrase. It shows up a lot, in particular in Joshua. And it's, it's not just the death penalty here. This is a sacrifice to God. This was, at least within Israel, an issue of marriage faithfulness in which God's people have become a new Sodom and Gomorrah. They had become what we would call apostates. As James Jordan argues, the idea is that if a person or a city refuses to accept God's sacrifice for them and instead, instead pursues the hideous worship of other gods, those people would instead become a sacrifice to God. His holiness demands it. And that's still true today. You know, if people refuse God's offer of life and covenant with him through the death of Christ, freely given, they will die in their sins. And it's their choice. They have chosen the fire of hell and God gives them over to what they want. Now, the third issue in, in this section of laws is pretty weird for us. It's uh, verse 19, and it deals with the issue of bestiality. Now, what stands behind this is Genesis 1 through 3. Repeatedly in Genesis 1, you can just read through there, God orders all his creatures, and it says this over and over again, according to their own kind. And bestiality clearly crosses a barrier God did not intend to be crossed. It's an utter perversion of his creation and rejection of the command to be fruitful and multiply. We see a similar perversion with Genesis 6 and the Nephilim, and again in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. See, humanity in rebellion against God is always attempting to bring uh, disorder and chaos to what God has ordered. So what you see happening in our culture today in terms of sexual identity or the breakdown of genders or, or all that stuff, it's actually nothing new. It's nothing new. It feels that way to us, but it's nothing new. It's rather that American culture is just more and more acting out on perverted sinful desires, just like you would find in the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, just start reading ancient history I mean, original sources and all that, and compare it against our own times, and you will see there is nothing new under the sun. Modern people think they are enlightened or free, but guess what? They did back in ancient times too. But there's another aspect to this law that is often missed by us. See, bestiality is the rejection of humanity's dominion over the animal kingdom. So for example, in Genesis 1 and 2, humanity is given rule and stewardship over God's creation. And we see uh, this, this specific instance with the animal kingdom when, God, when Adam is given authority over them by, by naming them. But in Genesis 3, the roles are reversed. And instead of Eve having dominion over the serpent, she listens to the serpent, trusts in his voice, and in turn gives him authority over her. And Adam follows suit. 
know, it's purposeful, I think, that Satan came to Eve as a serpent, as a wise and crafty animal who was attempting to undermine humanity's God-given right to rule over him. Well, that's what's in view here. It's a repeat of Genesis 3. It's a false worship because a person has listened to the wrong voice and like Eve has surrendered his or her body to perversion and rejection of God's ordering of creation. Okay, so you know, hopefully you can see how these three diverse laws are all of a piece with faithfulness and worship and why they all receive the death penalty. Worship involves our bodies. It just does. God isn't capricious here. I mean, he doesn't give the death penalty for just any offense. No, what's on view is heinous and a willful perversion of God's creation. This is why both individuals and sometimes whole cities were put to death for this stuff. It was a perversion that polluted the land. Now, we're going to switch gears again. The next section of laws covers verses 20 through 27. And the basic idea is that God is compassionate. And because of that, his people must be compassionate too. So you can see already in this passage, God's justice and his compassion. So one aspect of how God's people express their faithfulness to him is by taking on his character. And so what we find here are four cases that deal with people who are either on the margins of society or are in a vulnerable place within society. And the first deals with a sojourner, that is a foreigner or an immigrant. As outsiders, they wouldn't have had really any power or real ability to uh, defend themselves. And because of that, they were easy marks. They were easy to be abused or manipulated. Now think about it, you know, a family of immigrants comes through and what's to stop a group of men from town from robbing them or worse? You know, Israel was not to oppress these people because Israel had once been in the same boat. God's people don't despise foreigners or immigrants. They don't abuse them or take advantage of them. No, Israel was to remember her history and treat these people well. Now, the natural mindset The natural sinful mindset is to hate or to fear uh, those who are different or foreign. And and that's, that's not to say a nation shouldn't have border security or immigration laws. I mean, governments have the duty to protect their citizens. Even so, God's people are to take on his character and to show kindness and mercy as the, as they encounter these sorts of people. Why? Because they are still actual people. So the next law deals with widows and fatherless children. Notice it doesn't just say orphans. It says fatherless children. That is Israelites who were left vulnerable to attacks and extortion and legal manipulation and what have you. It's why marriage and two-parent families actually protect the vulnerable and stabilize society against poverty and abuse. So God says if Israel decides to mistreat these groups, He himself will execute justice. Now that's big, that's big. In previous cases, like what we were just talking about, Israel was to carry out justice. In this case, God says, no, I'll do it, I'll do it. And that's indicative of how much he cares about these people. And what is presumed then, that that men more than likely will be the ones abusing widows and orphans, I mean, not always, 
but typically. And so God will enact justice on such men, as it says there in his burning wrath, by taking their lives and in turn making their own wives and children into widows and fatherless children. That's an eye for an eye, direct from the hand of God. And it's telling that God cares so deeply for people that the powerful often despise or neglect or seek to abuse. This is why his character was on full display when he was tender and compassionate to Israel and brought her out of Egypt and brought justice to Egypt. God's people must never take on the character and the posture of Egypt. Now, the next two case laws in the same section involve lending to the poor. That's verses 25 through 27. Now, it was fine to lend money out with interest in Israel, but God did not allow you to do that to the poor. So just as it was fine for a, a farmer to sell his crop at market for profit, even so, he was to leave some, some gleanings behind for the poor. So just think of the book of Ruth, right, and what Boaz did for her. So instead of profiting off the poor, like what we see in our own town with payday lenders or with you know, really aggressive credit card companies charging ridiculous interest rates, uh, Israel was to treat the poor with dignity by lending them money, but also with compassion by not charging interest on that loan. Related to this, if you were to lend someone money and you take their cloak, and this would have been you know, their heavy outer garment, if you take that cloak as collateral, you have to give it back to the person every single night. And what's in view here, it's not just anyone, it's again the poor. So this would have been perhaps the man's most valuable possession and what he slept in at night. Think about it. He doesn't have enough for a fire. This is it. This is his outer garment. This is what he's, he's working with. It's why someone would choose to take that as collateral. Clearly, it's valuable. So if you look at how these laws are expounded in Deuteronomy 24, the idea is that you cannot take what is critical for life from a poor person as collateral. To put that in modern terms, you can't take a man's car or his tools or maybe his phone or his means for providing for himself as collateral, which would probably be his most valuable possessions. So what's in view here is if you lend to the poor and Israel was expected to do this, you are taking a risk and trusting that God will judge over you and make good on it. It is always risky to love your neighbor. Every aspect, and we were just talking about this earlier in the service, love is sacrificial, which means it may cost you and sometimes dearly. But if you decide to take that kind of collateral anyway, disregarding God's commands about it, and the man cries out to God, and get the picture here, the man is desperate enough to endure physical hardship for the sake of the loan, God will hear him and God will do something about it. It's why later in Deuteronomy 24, God warns against abusing or manipulating hired workers, either you know, Israelites or foreigners. I mean, just think of migrant workers who harvest our produce in California or work in meat processing plants. God will hear their cries and he will do something about it. Now, we're gonna change gears one more time and look at this, this last section of laws. These laws deal with loyalty to God or wholeheartedness, which of course 
Again, these are all issues related to the issue of faithfulness and spiritual faithfulness to our God. Verse 28 says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. To revile is to dishonor. It's to withhold glory from God. In fact, glory in Hebrew actually means heavy. It's heavy. So to withhold glory is to take God lightly, is to refuse to give him his due weight. It's like that phrase that used to happen a lot in the 80s when people say, man, this is really heavy. Right. That's exactly right. God is really heavy. And by reviling him, you're taking him lightly. Related to this is cursing the ruler of God's people. Cursing is the opposite of blessing, and what's in view here is uh, to speak evil of the one God has placed in power and authority over you. The ruler of God's people, now it could be a civil authority, just think of a governor or a king, but also what's in view is uh, ecclesiastical authority, like say a pastor. And God puts these two things together, his own rule and the rule he established, because in his view, they go hand in hand. Give proper weight and glory to God. Don't take him lightly. Honor him with your life and your productivity and your time, even your children. You know, likewise, show proper respect for those, those God has put in authority over you. And at least in terms of the civil authorities, no matter how well they rule or how evil they may be, you still owe them this. Paul makes the same points in Romans 12 and 13 when he says, first, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, spiritual worship is, is accomplished through what you do with your body. To be spiritual is never merely thinking or feeling. It always is expressed through what you do with your body. In chapter 13, Paul says, let every person be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. So he's writing this to, to Roman Christians who were living under emperors who were often worshiped as God, required that worship from their citizens, even as they claimed the title to be the son of God. So that's utter blasphemy. That's utter blasphemy. But even so, God's people were to show these leaders respect and honor, even as they clearly disagreed with them. You know, you can honor someone. You can respect someone without affirming their sin or their evil. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did that very thing in the book of Daniel. In other words, and this is reflected in verses 29 through 30 of our passage, give your life to God in all things, your wealth, your time, your worship, your body, your children, your spouse, everything. Why? Because everything is a gift from him. Everything is a gift from him. And there is no time in which you are not engaged in worship in some way. What you do with your body is an act of worship. It just is. So when you leave this place, guess what? You're still worshiping. The question is what? Are you worshiping? Everything you do with your body is reflective of your loyalty to God. Likewise, because he has established every authority, and remember what we saw earlier in the passage in terms of the temptation to reject God's ordering and structuring of the world. Because we believe and trust that God has all authority, like what we 
professed our faith in earlier with our world belongs to God, we pay those rulers honor and respect. And of course, the history of God's people after this passage is a history of rebellion against both God and Moses. So the final, the final part of this section seems completely unrelated and really weird, but it's of a piece. It's verse 31, and it says this, you shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. And this is uh, actually similar to those phrases where God says, since I am holy, you be holy. As in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So to be holy is to be set apart. It's to be in right relationship with God and neighbor. That's why Peter says to be sober-minded, setting your hope on Jesus, obedient to God's commands, and not to be conformed to sinful desires. Guess what? Our entire passage is about this. This is exactly what's in view as well with this final verse in our passage. But God doesn't just say to be holy here. He, he gives a law to not eat meat from a partially, partially eaten animal carcass. No, instead, you let the dogs eat that. And so in our session meeting before this is like, so we can't eat roadkill anymore? It was a joke, I hope. Uh, What's in view is not so much roadkill, though I guess you could picture that if you wanted to, but an animal that had been partially eaten out in the field by, say, you know, lions or something like that, or a coyote or whatever you want to think of. This has nothing to do with hy hygiene, has nothing to do with eating meat. This is symbolic. This is symbolic. This is a law that reinforces to Israel that she was set apart. You see, because God is the God of life, he will not be associated with death. He cannot be associated with death. Death pollutes the world. So as God's bride, holy to the Lord, Israel could not be associated with death either. And many of the laws, for example, on bodily fluids in Leviticus and elsewhere, get this exact same meaning. That's why God atoned for Israel at the Passover and daily atoned for her in the sacrificial system and then ultimately atoned for the world through Jesus. It's why Jesus declares in Acts 10 that nothing is unclean anymore. But the phrase, throw it to the dogs, that's important too. Ancient people didn't think about dogs like, like we do. They weren't typically seen as pets or members of the family, or precious, or cute, or any of that kind of thing. No, for Israelites, and you can see this in the New Testament too, dogs were associated with the Gentiles. And it was an incredibly insulting term. So to leave the dead animal to the dogs was a symbolic way of saying, leave the dead things to the Gentiles because they are a people of death. You, Israel, have been given life. Walk in it. The meaning is then no different than what Paul says when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So the issue isn't that Israel was to hate the Gentiles or hate meat or hate dogs or anything like that. I mean, why, why would God tell Israel to show them kindness in the foreigners and the immigrants? I mean, just think of the book of Jonah. Why would God call Israel to that if they were supposed to hate them? No, it's that Israel was not supposed to walk in their ways. Israel was a people set apart who enjoyed life with God. So when you take all of this together, clearly our context is a little different. It's a little different than what we see here in Exodus 22, but the calling and the principles that undergird these laws are exactly the same. We are a holy people set apart by God because of his great love for us. So our calling there is the same as what you see in Romans 12 and 13. It's the same as what you see here, that we are to be conformed to our God, who is our husband and our king, through the power of the Spirit. In fact, we have it easier. We have it better than the Old Testament people did because we have been filled with the Spirit. He is working in us to bring forth his character as a people, the fruit of the Spirit, who are to be salt and light to the world. That is our calling. So let's be conformed to him. Let's pursue our God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you've given us so much in your son Christ. You've given us so much. You've made us your people. We who are Gentiles by birth, we who by birth should be an alienation to you, yet you have engrafted us into your people. You have made us even more so your family, that we sit at your table as sons and daughters. Lord, may this truth, may this reality uh, permeate everything we do. That what we do with our bodies and our minds and our hearts and our voices and our feet, everything about us, Lord, may it be in glory to you. May we walk in your ways. May we be conformed to your image and to your character. May we love you most. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.